I could walk in the gym and, and probably not do anything and I'd be good at squatting, right? Like I, I was always a strong squatter. Um, and I could squat as hard as I want. I mean, obviously I did, you know, so I squat harder than I wanted to. Um, and I would get better at it, you know, and I could do almost no accessory, nothing else. And I would still get better at squatting. But the people that are not necessarily built well for squatting or don't improve a lot when they do a lot of squatting suffer from it because it becomes so fatiguing and it produces so little result for them, even if they did increase their squat five kilos or 10 kilos. Um, it may not have any transference to weightlifting because it's, it's required them to become a completely different kind of, of lifter. They've become slower because they've done so much squatting. They've done so much volume to get so much bigger, whatever it is, all those maladaptations are just detracting from being a good weightlifter. That was Olympic weightlifting coach, Max Ada, speaking on drawbacks of chasing numbers in the squat in an Olympic weightlifting training program. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches, training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 149 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. On the show today, we have Coach Max Ada. He is the head coach of Team Juggernaut and is making waves in the weightlifting and powerlifting community as a masterful coach, working with athletes who are setting records in not only Olympic lifting, but powerlifting as well. Uh, Max himself has been involved with the sports of weightlifting and powerlifting as a coach and athlete for the better part of two decades. He's trained under legendary coaches, uh, very well known for uh, training under Ivan Avajeyev in the Bulgarian system where they would lift eight times a day um, and er, at working the different like Olympic lifts and squatting. And Max himself ended up squatting eight times a day at one point and actually putting an immense amount on his own uh, training on his own Max doing that. And um, that's a really cool story if you haven't heard that in other podcasts, but very well known for that. And so it's it's actually really cool to be able to sit down coaches from all corners of the field. I, I know a lot of you listening are strength and conditioning coaches for non-strength sports as well as track and field coaches. Um, but I think that listening, listening and talking with coaches of strength sports, which is, again, the barbell being a huge tool used in the conditioning and preparation of athletes these days, is extremely valuable. Max has an incredible passion for his sport. He is a guy who has absolutely studied the 
edges of his field has poured over Soviet training manuals, has huge Bondarchuk training influences. Um, As I mentioned before, has trained with a number of legendary coaches. And as you'll find out in our conversation today, is really holistically integrating um, the best the field really has to offer in, in his own system, as well as his own experience from other coaches. So, so you know, sometimes I, I think about, well, what is this podcast a physical preparation podcast or strength and conditioning podcast? Is it a speed and jumping type podcast? I, I feel like um, exploring all corners of our field is really a requirement to paint the deepest picture in what it means to train athletes, to be an athlete, to be a coach. And I, I always, I, one of the things that I, I, a quote that I've heard recently was, you can't um, read the label while you're inside the bottle. And I feel like sometimes as coaches, whether we're a track coach or a soccer coach or a basketball coach or a swim coach or a physical preparation strength coach, whatever it's called these days, um, it, we can learn so much by talking with coaches who are outside of our specific sport. And I know I've, I've gotten that experience through um, talking with stre- uh, track coaches in context of being a strength coach or talking with swim coaches. And it has made me better at what I do immensely. So I'm super stoked to bring you guys this podcast, which was recorded in person with Max at Max's Gym. Um, and it's all about, one, we go into the concepts of Olympic lifting training for athletes. Because for those of you who are strength coaches listening, I'm sure that's a area of importance and people debate it a lot. Um, so Max is going to give his take on that. And before we actually shot this, Max was teaching me the Olympic lifts for the better part of an hour, probably over an hour. And the time absolutely flew by. And just the all those specifics that w- that go into the competition lifts are really, really incredible. And I think that sometimes I think we take them for granted if we are implementing the those lifts in an athletic performance program. So that's what the first about third of the show is all about. The last two-thirds of the show is just an absolute dynamite bit on how Max has taken a holistic approach into training his Olympic weightlifters. And that's after being through the Bulgarian system and everything that he has learned and experienced as an athlete and coach and, and that and what it is filtered down to. And the awesome thing is a lot of it um, you will see uh, if you've listened to this podcast and then like the, bond, the ideals of Bondarchuk and and uh, training transfer uh, and special strength, uh, Matt, you're going to see how Max is using that in a method that is building um, national record holder level athletes. And it's just really cool to hear him talk about his system. I know after this podcast and then even listening and editing it the second time around, you could you better believe I was watching the way that Olympic lifts, uh, my athletes were doing Olympic lifts a lot more closely. Uh, and just being a lot more, I guess, scrutinizing in why I had them in the program, as well as why I had anything in the program, to be honest. And and one of the beautiful things is Olympic weightlifting is a strength sport, but the way that Max even talks about something like a squat in context of building his athletes makes us all think. And so um, Max is also, he's going to talk a lot of, as well about his potentiation, or I, I want to say phase potentiation, but his periodization plan. And compared to what like the Bulgarians were doing, which wasn't much of a periodization plan, but how he um, scales periodization and planning. And um, he's going to, Max is going to chat a little bit about rest and recovery and then finishing with thoughts on squat weight in context of training Olympic lifters. So 
it was an honor and just a whole heck of a lot of fun to do this podcast with Max. So let's get on to it. Episode 149 with Coach Max Ada. In the world of, I feel like weightlifting as opposed to maybe track and field sometimes, like like gnarly workouts, like just shit that is just out there and crazy and boiling yeah. unbelievable. I feel like, you know, I mean, track, there's some tough stuff in the 400 or maybe distance running and you hear like how many miles the Kenyans are doing. But to right. me, it just, it really doesn't get close to like some of the things I've heard, like the stories from, from you and then some other people and even, even stuff that makes German volume training seem kind of mild mannered and tame, you know? Yeah, you know, like the like all the like Bulgarian stuff I did when I trained with Bulgarians, even before that, my first coach, like those workouts are different. I think I think like there's no way I could run a marathon. There's no way I could. You could hold a gun to my head, and I just I'd prefer to die. Um, <laughs> even probably a five k. But five k's are rough. Yeah, <laughs> five k's are rough. But uh, like the endurance aspect of that stuff is way more. It's a different kind of pain, I'm sure. But the the like. I don't want to say grinding. I hate the word grinding, but like the, the just day to day having to deal with feeling as awful as you could possibly feel and still having to train and train at this pace and this level. That's just like unbearable where every day, every lift is, is maximum intensity and like trying to maintain that and keep it going day after day after day and week after week is just it's brutal. And so it's a different kind of like, it's a different kind of uncomfortable or pain or whatever you want to say. But then I would think like any kind of like single hardest workout, you know, where German volume training is like, you know, 10 sets of 10 is awful that day, but you don't, you don't come back the next day and do it again. You know, you don't train yeah, your legs yeah. <laughs> six days a week that way. You train them once a week that way. Right. So like the, you know, the super, super ridiculous, like squatting every single workout five, six times, 10 times a day, whatever it is 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 a, just a totally different level of of like really uncomfortable <laughs> state of mind or state of being i guess what's the what's the gnarly like what's been the toughest like you've done almost probably everything imaginable in the world of lifting like what's been the mentally emotionally the whole package what's been the hardest I, lifting workout i you've think done? hands down the, i can't you know i've thought about this question a lot i don't think there's ever been a the hardest workout um i can think of the hardest time period was definitely when I was training with the Bulgarians because it wasn't so much that like, Oh, it's the most training I ever did. It's that there was no reprieve from what you're supposed to do. There's this demand placed on you of like, you're going to train, you know, you go to maximum today, every exercise. And that's just every day. It's already, you already know exactly what tomorrow is going to be. You know exactly how you feel. You know how, how bad everything is every single day. But there's nowhere anyone cares about how you feel. There's no, the coach doesn't care. Like, there's nothing, there's no sympathy. There's no, like, I'm just going to take it easy today. It's like every day is just, that's what you have to do. This, the same thing again and again at this extreme level where, where, you know, it's like, you know, that Saturday is the worst day of the week because it's the sixth day of training and it's, you know, two sessions, eight exercises. And, you know, it's, there's, there's no let up. So that was, I think the hardest time was actually like being with the Bulgarians and training that way. Um, more so than anything else, any one particular workout doesn't stand out as being the hardest, um, you know, doing like super high volume stuff, like the, 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 you know, eight sets of eight and stuff is like, it's really bad, but like, you know, you do that maybe once in a week or something like that. So yeah. What was the eight? Was that like Duranda, like eight sets of eight or I'm trying no, to that was just, that was just, uh, keep adding sets of eight each week and oh. we're just overloading. And we started, I started at like five sets and maybe after like four weeks got up to about eight sets and 
and uh, you know it was it was it's hard and it's like a really hard workout, but it just takes a long time and you recover a little bit and do another set and then do another set and um, those workouts just were super boring to me. I just couldn't I couldn't stand doing like sets of ten or something like that. It just was so mind numbing to me. I'd rather just do you know, three or four, one really. And then, you know, do a bunch of those and just keep coming to the gym and doing them again and again. So, yeah, I, I did German volume like uh-huh. one time in my life. I'm like, Oh, I got to give it a go. I have small legs and I need to get big. <laughs> and I, I, I want to, and, and it's like, Oh yeah. And it's a two Oh two tempo or whatever Paul yeah, Quinn yeah. put on it. When I was reading the Poliquin article, I think it was on Teen nation or God, whatever. That sounds awful. <laughs> and yeah, it, uh, Man, it, it was, uh, I just remember I, I did my, and I, this was in my apartment and I didn't have a rack, so I cleaned it and then did the 10 oh sets God. and it was like every, on every minute or two, two oh minutes rest. God. And, and I remember I lied on the floor. I was just lying on the floor after that. And for like five minutes and I was just looking up at the ceiling and I was like, I can't believe that. I was like, Oh wow, that really sucked. Like I'm so done that work. I hated it. And, and, you know, compared to being a jumper and elastic yeah. and the yeah. complete opposite of everything that I do. And then I'm just sitting here the days after kind of waiting for the recovery to kick in. I guess yeah, you could yeah. say I'm like finger quoting it. And I was like, I don't think it ever did. Like my mind's just like, <laughs> screw that. I don't want to do that again. That's not, yeah. you, know. you know, the Adam Nelson, we did a podcast with him. He was telling us about workouts that were just unbelievable, like in, insanity where it'd be like 10 sets of 10 on back squat, front squat, leg press, leg extension in one day. Oh, and it was just like. The fact that the guy was explosive at all afterward is a testament to, you know, gen- his insane genetics. I mean, had he trained differently, he may have been even more powerful, but it was just like, I mean, there's definitely people out there that have done m- these nutty, nutty workouts. But then none of that, I think, probably compares to the, the in, you know, having to run, you know, interval 400s or 800s <laughs> or something that it is ridiculous, right? Where. It's just got to hurt so bad, you know? It's a different kind of pain, I guess, Yeah, it's right? a different pain. I lo- even, like, working with swimmers, like, it's amazing how, like, I'll make them do some of Jay Schreier's extreme isos, like, like three-minute iso lunge or something like yeah. that. And like, that, that was so hard. Like, that was, like, it's <laughs> like, I'll jump in the pool and swim. Like, this is hard. Like, this is, yeah, like, ridiculous. Yeah. And you guys are doing this, like, machines. And, right. And, and, and then, you know, you're doing something on land that's apparently, it's just, to me, it's all... It, it, the perception is always so interesting, you know, and like what's, yeah. what's hard and how you accustom yourself to it or take a, take a, like a Kenyan marathoner and put him in the, right. the Bulgarian system, you yeah, know, right, like right. something like that, like how, how contextual it is. Cause like those guys just love running, you know, like oh, yeah, 120 well. miles a week for them. Okay, <laughs> cool. Like, yeah, shit. I mean, that's insane. It, um, I was gonna, um, so one of the things, well, I did want to jump into, uh, some of your, you know, and, and I know you've talked about this on a lot of podcasts, so and I know a lot of people have probably heard about it, so I don't want to, you know, get onto that forever, your time actually in the Bulgarian system. But before I get too far, I, I just know for everyone who, you know, modern strength and conditioning, Olympic lifting is such a big part of it. Like, yeah. and what, I mean, what's your take on, you know, if you were, you're training athletes, like, like things like the time spent in Olympic lifting for training, you know, team sport athlete, how, how worth it is it? Like, is that something you would do? Is it? Yeah. Well, I'll preface this by saying I, I don't actually do yeah. strength conditioning, so I can't claim to be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a weightlifting powerlifting coach. Um, that's my, that's my primary thing, but you know, we've, I've been asked this question a bunch and, and Chad and I have been to different, different, you know, uh, universities and facilities and I, I actually was an intern at montana state for a while uh in in the the uh strength and conditioning department and and one thing that i would say is different in my approach if i was going to do that 
I probably wouldn't spend a lot of time on the Olympic lists. And it's not that there's any kind of negativity towards them. Um, there's a million different arguments people have one way or the other. You know, it's too time consuming. It's dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Um, for me, it would be more a matter of, of from my experience, what I've seen in these places is that I would spend the, the limited energy and time I'd have with a staff and, and you know, um, any of that stuff working at the most basic stuff. You know, I have, I have weightlifters that hold, uh, you know, international records that hold American records, and we still spend time working on the mechanics of doing back squats and front squats and still spend time working on basic things. So knowing that these people who spend their entire career working with a barbell and doing these movements still need to spend time on basic movement stuff, that's probably where I would start most of the, of the things I would be doing in, in, in that setting, right? In the collegiate strength setting, I've seen so many times been in the gyms where people can't squat right. They can't squat correctly. They can't do certain things. And there's so much to be had from that low-hanging fruit that that's where I'd start. Um, not to say that the Olympic lifts are not necessarily a good option, but you know, I think a lot of that's going to come down to being like, what is, a, what is really the best, the best investment of your time and your energy? You know, and as a coach, it's easy to kind of, kind of pick something and think that that's going to have a big transference. But you know, really, what we're doing in that setting is general training, anyways, right? No, none of those people are practicing their sport in the weight room. So anything you do in that general preparation, you know, arena has to be, you know, has to fit the criteria of being safe, being effective, and and being manageable. And I think probably weightlifting, you know, snatch, clean and jerk exercises are low on that list. Right. They're probably higher on that list than doing like, you know, reverse band bench presses and reverse band back squats. And, you know, who knows who knows what else other, you know, terrible ideas there are. <laughs> but they, they'd probably be a lower on my my priority list, I think. Yeah, I love how you mentioned the reverse band, like like how just different pieces of this whole world we call strength, like <laughs> yeah. like this huge spectrum from kettlebells to, to powerlifting, the, all the corners, like, and it just shows up in training athletes, right? Because right. it's like, and just it, it's it's so haphazard. It's like if the coach says like, oh, I love this discipline, and yeah. so I'm going to do it. And yeah. the cool thing is talking to you. It's like, well, you you know were awesome at the Olympic list, but at the same time, if you were coaching athletes, that wouldn't be like yeah. the choice. And that shows like a thorough thought process. I don't think just like to me, my, my evolution as a coach has been that thought process of, okay, like, well, why are we doing this with these athletes right now? What am I trying to get out of this? Like, is it just, uh, you know, is it, is it just something we do or, or what in even how, you know, we were just spent the last like hour and a half and that time flew by. I looked up at the clock, like, holy yeah, cow, yeah. An hour. <laughs> like you just showing me some nuances of the Olympic lifts. And I'm like, holy cow, like my tendencies as an athlete are so different than what it yeah. takes to be an elite level Olympic lifter in the classical lifts where the yeah. bar has to go over your head and three green or three uh, white lights or whatever. And it's, it's very different, like in a yeah. lot of levels, like, I think it's it's funny you mentioned that too because it's a lot of I think that's a lot of people's coaches' biggest problems are that they they construct a framework around their thinking and then try to fit situations into their framework and this is this is a natural thing people do right they 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 create an identity system or an identity uh, structure environment for them to live in and then they try to find the reality around them that fits into that right so whatever that is for any you know any endeavor in life but in in coaching a lot if you're a weightlifting guy you try to fit everything into the spectrum of what fits into my thinking of weightlifting and how weightlifting is the most important thing in my universe how does it apply and all these other things and how you're always trying to make these connections and draw these 
these conclusions from things that are just not correct. It's just easy to do because your, your limited scope is formed by your passion for the sport. So like you said, you see a lot of strength addition coaches that are basically just power lifters or weightlifters that are, you know, or a, a fan of those things mm-hmm. that just, you know, try to put a, a square peg into a round hole and you end up in this, like, it's just not right, you know? Um, and you said even more and more nuanced as, as you get into any one field, it gets even probably more closed off where weightlifters, um, there's different, like, uh, there's different factions, I guess you'd call of weightlifting coaches that have very specific sets of belief or very, very specific belief systems that are designed around certain ideologies of, of the sport. So you have like the Bulgarian system people and the Russian system people and the Chinese system people. And it's like, none of these people are really looking at the people that get really into it, that, that identify an entire structure of training by one word. It's the Chinese system. They, what they've done is they've basically closed themselves off to the fact that there are, there are ways to measure everything. And they're not quantifying these systems by measurements that are, you know, metrics like volume, load, training, you know, stimulus, you know, they're not identifying technique with mathematics. They're just saying it's the Chinese system and they cram everything they can into that. And then they throw that into it and that's their identity system. And so you end up with like this ridiculousness where no one can compare anything or discuss anything or talk about anything because each system comes with its own set of jargon. Each system comes with its own preconceived kind of things. When, when you say, I do the Chinese system, it, it triggers these five or six concepts in everybody's mind that is the Chinese system. Oh, they all do like, like these weird kind of snatch pulls or weird, weird kind of this or that or these like things. And it's like, well, anyone can do that. It doesn't make it a Chinese system. It's just these people happen to do these things. And I think the Bulgarian system probably got the biggest, you know, it probably, probably owns that the most of any system because it's so easy for people to say, I do the Bulgarian system and every single person in weightlifting can tell you what that is. You know, it's, Oh, it's max out every day. And I can tell you from, from my experience that it's probably not as much that as you think it was because I had, I mean, I would have maybe do a set of 10 in the clean pole. Very different. He had me do clean grip overhead squats. Um, not to say that, that, you know, okay, so then what is the Bulgarian system? If, if it's not this identity, this identity, this kind of like image we've created, the symbol of what, what it really is, what is it? Well, it's probably more that we're assigning a name to something like the Bulgarian system and neglecting that it's a coach, right? It's Abhijayev's system. That, that's the guy who made this. He was successful there. Um, it just happened to be that he was Bulgarian. It happened to be that he was successful in this era. Uh, and so I think people get really dogmatic about that. And it's unfortunate that that kind of, you know, invades that invades weightlifting on this minute level. It definitely invades strength and conditioning and, and track and field and everything. I'm sure where, you know, there's these conflicting ideas that are not necessarily grounded in, in measurable quantities. They're grounded in, in feeling and emotion and sort of like identity systems. Right. Yeah. And I, I think like with Olympic weightlifting, particularly, it's like, you know, as we're going through it, like even some, it's almost like, 
I, I look at like the outcome of, of the ultimate Olympic style lift versus like what a lot of athletes exhibit. And there's probably some benefits too. Like I look at like myself as an athlete with no Olympic coach. I just did the Olympic lifts because uh-huh. it was in the program. And over time, a, a significant period of time, it's like my, because of how you just saw me lifting, my back erectors got a lot bigger and stronger. Yeah. And I think my glutes and hips were like bigger, but my legs were still the same. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing if you're a high jumper, but now you're a high jumper carrying an extra five pounds of muscle where you probably don't need it right, because of right. how you were throwing your head back on right. the Olympic lifts and stuff like that. And I think that's just stuff people don't, I mean, you can get away with it, obviously, sure. sure but there's, that doesn't mean there's not better things to do or better ways to approach the problem. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's actually the, the idea of getting away with it, I think is one of the biggest, biggest things for me as a coach that's evolved since the Bulgarian stuff. Um, when I, you know, I trained as a weightlifter, I was, I was not a good weightlifter. I didn't lift really great numbers or anything. I wasn't successful at big competitions. Um, but what I learned probably most about it is that you can get away with an enormous amount of unproductive work. Um, I was squatting and, you know, I, I told this to, to Chad years ago. Um, and it was like, you know, like, okay, so I squatted eight times a day and I had, let's just say a 600 pound squat. That's great. I know guys now that have 600 pound squats, they're 19 years old and they squat twice a week. And, and the reality is that like, you can get away with an enormous amount of stuff that is ineffective, but still be alive, still recover ish, you know, still, still be training and just be doing so much useless, wasted time and effort that your training is just completely inefficient. And now my perspective is always a matter of how can I do less? How can I make the training as ma- how can I maximize training to be the most effective it can possibly be so that, you know, the, the, the best analogy is that Bulgarian is the Bulgarian system is the sum of the parts are almost the whole, right? And you just got to keep adding a little bit. Maybe it's, maybe it's actually 5% less than the whole. Whereas the system now we have and the, the way of training now is that the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, right? That, that the, the, everything we're doing is much more effective than it was less training volume, less work, less stuff is being done. That's unusable or unnecessary. And so that big shift from, yeah, you can get away with tons of things and do things wrong and you can, you know, you can do cleans in a way that makes your back bigger and stronger and that's not as effective, but you can kind of get away with it. Now it's a matter of, well, how do we avoid all those mistakes and, and have this really directed, really, really well-tuned system that produces the result we want with the least amount of work, right? Yeah, it's... um it, I always am thinking about like, yeah, this, this balance between like male adaptations, you know, we have X amount of time in the weight room. Like, like how do we make everything maximally beneficial without getting carried away with things? Yeah. And my, my, my workouts have definitely been chopped down over time. And a lot of things spent like towards the back half are more like some of the extreme isometrics in the Jay Schrader world stuff. That's not as it's very simple, but just done for a lot of just like just basic muscular non-compensation length purposes. And, and so I've definitely done less over time myself. I, uh, you know, one of the things before we get into it, cause I want to talk to you about like basically before you spent time with Abhijay after how that yeah. has impacted you and the whole and the parts and how much is too much. I yeah. know we, we were, we were both even talking jumping a little bit ago. And it's like, yeah. well, how much of that, you know, like yeah, yeah. how much of that is good if, if this is your sport. Right. And like, um, but in terms of the Olympic lifts themselves, cause I did want to kind of kick off yeah. this with like, okay, you are doing Olympic lifts or I am using Olympic lifts for my athletes. And there's, there are those things like, like 
was just me, like I'm throwing my head back too much or you were trying to get me to really get into the ground more. Yeah. So like, what are some core components of a good Olympic lift just it, it, from a human body functioning the way it should using the legs, yeah, <laughs> not I, overusing other parts? The, the biggest components I would say are, are, are you know, the, the major factors in weightlifting that are really important and from a technical model would be the first thing is position, right? You, you have to have your body and the links of your body in the right position in order to maximize force production and, and anything else. If you're not, if you know, if you're, if your knees are bent too much, your legs are too straight, your backs, you know, whatever position until those positions are maximum are, are, you know, as close to ideal as possible, you shouldn't really worry about moving to the next stage. The next stage would be tempo, right? The tempo of moving, what what is the pace at which you apply force? What is the pace at which you, um, you know, uh, uh, actually execute the the pattern of the movement? Um, basically, w- at what speed are you moving from one position to the next? Once that's maximized, or, or really where you want, it would be essentially the timing of the lift. You know, when are you applying maximum force? Not so much the tempo, but when is when is it that you actually exert maximum force in the lift? Are you doing that accurately? People, this has been studied well in, in, in weightlifting, in, in, especially in the pull, there's a distribution of force. If you imagine that the, the first pull and the second pull are two separate things, which one of those comprises more percentage of force production? Or, or not more, we know the second pull is, but, but what is the tempo and pace at which you execute those? Some people execute the first pull with much more force than they execute the second pull. They, they execute the first pull much faster than the second pull in the sense that they are applying more of that force early on in the lift versus later on in the lift. Um, and so, you know, what, what is that? What are you, are you balancing that correctly? Are you applying force at the right time in the lift? So once you have position down, once you have tempo down, once you have timing down, the final thing would be speed, right? How fast are you actually trying to move through the movement? Um, and that, that's something that comes with, with time as you lift because you become more and more uh, unconscious in your execution of the technique. You're not focused on actually moving my body into this position, controlling the speed I pull, you know, timing when I'm explosive. Uh, your speed will come as those things start to become ingrained, and then you start to become faster and faster and faster. So, uh, you know, those four kind of key things are, are where we start with lifting, with good weightlifting, in that you've got to be good at the first one before you move to the next one. And even in any one training cycle, that's how you practice with a lifter is you start from the most critical, most basic stuff and work from there towards the final product at the end of the the cycle. Um, Before I would say, you know, some people get kind of focused on, on, you know, trying to fix certain things as all the time, right? They're trying to, you know, control this and that and this and that, but they're not even in the right position, right? So that's where I would say is like the kind of fundamental bedrock of weightlifting stuff. Yeah, in in working with you just the last couple hours, it's like I love seeing all these parallels into other aspects of of sport and performance. And I always love looking at like these pieces that apply to everything. And like the position first thing, I think is so important. You know, and like the J Schrader and all the isometrics and just being able to hold a proper position before you get to anything else. Right. But what blew me away and I really liked was was the timing. Like like, and I've been learning a ton through sprint coaches, like my mentor Darian Barr, how. A lot of coaches in like the sprint world don't or jump world a lot of times don't pay attention to the timing in lift or, or right. jumping and sprinting and it's just it's just apply force as fast as possible right. to the ground and absent of looking at the greater parts and it's like as we were going through this the timing of when I pulled was a really important part of the equation yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And I, you know, and I, and I was, it was interesting though, because we talk about where things can differ and where Olympic lifts is like everything can be a poison and a medicine, right? Like for me, yeah. if I was a high jumper, to be a good Olympic lifter, if you're going to coach me, right, I need to be more patient. But, but the high jumper in me wants that impulse to come really fast. Right, right. And if I was to train like formally and the way like an Olympic lifter is supposed to, well, maybe I'd be a better football lineman. I, my legs would probably get stronger. And that's <laughs> yeah. good, you know, but like I'm also, I'm, I'm probably going to be hurting another sports yeah. skill that's really critical to me for, for yeah. me like that. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that kind of really understanding that principle, the, the, the specificity really, really is, is huge because if you understand that you can utilize any other training mechanism to achieve the goal you want, right? If you want a lifter to become more fast or more explosive, um, you know, then you have to apply methods to them that, that develop that. And maybe they're transitory in the program. They're not in there all the time, but they are in there for a short period of time. And we were kind of talking about this jumping. And that's something that, that I think makes big, you know, makes a lot of sense is that, you know, you're not necessarily training a jumper, you're training a weightlifter, but jumping and those kind of exercises may have a big impact for a short period of time. And they may be really well utilized at very key moments in the program to augment the qualities you want to augment much like, you know, maybe a, a high jumper or somebody might early in the general stages of training may benefit from, from weightlifting in the sense that, yeah, they're going to develop certain qualities that impact them positively later on. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but understanding that is a big pro is a big, a big, big key is that it's not bigger squat equals better football. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's going to be a point where that taps out. And like, I, I even like, if I'm you know going to high jump this season, even just training the way we were just for a few months would be cool in the sense of learning to not just to me, not to throw a new extension and, and you overuse my back and everything to be a little more core centric, get into my yeah. legs to make my legs strong for a period of time. But ultimately the wiring can't be that way or, yeah. or eventually like just tendo it and everything's yeah, yeah. as fast. I mean, that's, and that's kind of where I'm headed. It's like, okay, we are going to Olympic lift for explosion or yeah. velocity. Well, now, well, how do we at least do that as well as we can? You know, right. otherwise it can be just tend to on the bar, just just go for it. Right, but right. now we're going to make a lot of mistakes too. And there is some good, but there's also some potential bad that yeah. like, like you were telling me not to like use my, use my lats to pull the bar in too close because I'm sure a lot of people could put a tend to a knot. Yeah. You know, and, and just like elliptical it over right, the top right, right. Or, just throw, yeah. or, or overthrow themselves backwards. Like they're throwing a shot behind their head or various yeah. things. And that, that would solve the problem of being to get the tendo as fast as it goes. But there's some, some, yeah. some poisons that can accumulate along the way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, that's something too. that's interesting. Like the idea of, of the Olympic lifts, you know, we talked about this too, is that there's an architecture to the lifts that you're trying to, to replicate and, and something that we try to do is, is all the special exercises we do have to mimic the exercise, the competitive exercise, mm -hmm. the same with any sport. But uh, there, there's an architecture to that, that that is unique to weightlifting where it's not always a matter of the most, right? Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily want the highest bar velocity all the time or the, the, you know, the highest absolute relative or sorry, the highest relative height of the bar. Um, you want to have... You know, similarities you want to have something that looks the same that's congruent with the, the sport itself and so exercises need to take on that role where they they mimic the exercise that you're competing in to the degree that it actually has transference and if you have you know, if you just sit there and you're like i'm just going to do you know try to pull the bar as high as i can or go as heavy as possible you might get benefits from that in the short term that seem like they're benefiting that are you know seem productive but they're not because the reality is you're not developing 
a, a motor pattern or developing a skill set that's the same as the actual competitive movement. Yeah, it makes right. me think about like how Bonder Chuck would like cycle yeah. in and out yeah. that stuff. Like it would never stay right. in forever because right. then it's not the competitive movement. It shouldn't be in here exactly. forever. Probably eventually find something else to do. Yeah, yeah, that's something that's been been a really big uh, change for me too. Is is the idea of exercise sequencing and exercise selection, and and how to apply that and how to create a, a, a standardized system or or an algorithm really for how that works. Um, because that's something that I think is, is sort of lost a lot of times, especially with weightlifting coaches in that they, there's a, you know, there's thousands of exercises in the repertoire of weightlifting coaches and how many really are necessary or get used, right? 15, 20, Mm -hmm. 30, (laughs) right. That are really productive, but it's sort of like chic to use these like, you know, weird exercises or like pick something this way or that way, or, you know, make a complex that is just pointless really where it's has no has no bearing on on the classic exercise but it's cool so looks good on instagram yeah it gets likes it gets likes (laughs) that's really what we're getting at it's the instagram fame right um but yeah so so it's a that's a bonder truck is i think amazing at that and pioneered a lot of stuff in that regard that we can draw from as waves and coaches yeah, I think Abijev's system probably wouldn't have gotten a ton of Instagram fame <laughs> outside just the the lift numbers, you know, yeah, like like yeah. The, maybe the the culture, like maxing the ambience, out all the time yeah. might have been cool, but yeah, no one's gonna be all. You know, it's gonna be the same video every day. <laughs> yeah, after a while, for the first two weeks, it'll be. That awesome. was always the joke when we were going. We go into the gym to train. Uh, the, uh, Nikolai, the super heavy, who was there, he would always say, "What are we doing today? Bench press." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome you have to i think you have to make jokes yeah. to like oh, yeah, to, sure. to, to mental your way around just yeah. doing the same thing over and over yeah. again uh no one of the things i really love when we were just working together too is like like you were saying it's it's all the pole is all the same if you're in a competitive olympic weightlifter, the pole is always at the same speed roundabout mm-hmm. just like the same if you're a swimmer you want to ta- know how many strokes you're going to take right. to get across right. it's always the same and then just do it better or it's going to be heavier or whatever yeah. And I, th- I thought that was really cool with that end goal in mind. But then I'm like, wait, okay, in this, how do I get to be fast? Like, what's a good, like, because I'm, like, sitting here, like, oh, I got to be patient. But then the drop is really fast. Right. And, like, and how you stack those plates up to the sides of my feet to make me, like, I'm, like, now that lights out my, my yeah, type yeah. 1B explosive. I'm, like, yes, like, this is, that yeah. lit me up, man. Like, to, to basically do a clean, and now I have little uh, half-inch bumper plates, three-quarter-inch bumper plates on the side of my feet that I have to lift my feet land on and catch the bar yeah. and i'm like that's fast and so can you tell me just a little bit about like like but yeah basically like and obviously for those coaches who do olympic lifts with athletes and are trying to get more out of it from an athletic perspective um about tell me a little bit about like the feet and the feet you know if they come off the ground coming off the ground landing how do you get that part of the lift that squat under that catch to be better yes i mean uh a, b- a big thing and this is something i talked about um in in the first book i wrote the technique triad was there's there's basically three components to the lift that that are you know essentially exist within all weightlifting movements and that's that's the relative height of the bar, the trajectory of the barbell, and the time to fixation. And time to fixation is what we're talking about here in that how, how fast does a lifter move from exerting force on the barbell to receiving the barbell in the, in the catch position. And with the feet and how the feet actually interact with the ground, you know, the, the, when your foot interacts with the ground, you're still applying force to the bar. As soon as your feet leave the ground, you can no longer apply any force to the barbell. Um, so what we do in weightlifting, what we're really concerned about with, with foot movement is that we are able to maximize the time we stay on the ground and the speed with which we replace our feet back on the floor. 
And so that drill we did with you, where we put some bumper plates next to your feet, are what you were doing was the you know you, you even coined it the Michael Jackson, where you're basically <laughs> staying on the forefoot forever after you after the bar has left your fo- your uh, thigh. So make contact with the clean or with the bar. Bar leaves your 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 thigh, but your feet are still on the ground. Your toe is still on the ground. And what that does is basically doesn't allow you or maybe it's, it's more that you're, you're staying on the ground because you don't know where to put your feet or exactly mm-hmm. what to do with your feet. Um, so, so you're not going to maximize that aggressive return to the floor, which subsequently augments your time to fixation mm-hmm. because you're going to be more aggressive and moving under the barbell. Uh, so the drill we did where we put you know, bumpers on the side of your feet and force you to jump onto them really just rewires your thinking to be move my feet aggressively and plant them on the floor. Mm-hmm. You already know you're moving into a squat position, right? It's a natural reaction to go into a squat. So the idea of being aggressive with footwork and forcing you to be aggressive because you think, well, if I don't pick my feet up, if I don't mm-hmm. move them, they're not getting on these bumpers, uh, you know, you're, it helps you to augment that time to fixation because now you've imparted all the force you can to the ground. There's no delay in moving under because it, there's a panic, you know, the general sense of, <laughs> of, you know, getting your ass in gear yeah. to, to move your feet and stomp on the floor or stomp on the bumpers in this case. Um, so, you know, what we want to do is try to maximize those things, those real like transition points between applying force to the ground, picking your feet up and then replacing them quickly. We don't move our feet in weightlifting, especially the snatch or the clean for the sake of moving them. We move them to accomplish something, right? We pull from a little bit narrower position than we receive the weight um, when we move our feet aggressively, it helps us also when, we, when you plant your foot on the ground, it helps to, um, you know, I guess, I guess the term, um, would be like to, to, to recruit more fibers, not necessarily when you put your foot down on the ground firmly, you're going to tighten up the muscles in your, mm-hmm. in your hips and your legs better, right. And faster, yeah. um, you're, you're putting yourself in a position to, to actually receive the weight with some type of uh, intent rather than just having your feet stuck to the ground and falling down under it mm-hmm. and the bar lands on you hard and collapses you. So, so that drill accomplishes a bunch of things. It teaches you to pick your feet up after you've done pulling. It teaches you to plant your feet down firmly, which then also teaches you how to receive the weight in a better position and then so on and so forth. So in weightlifting, you know, when we're doing stuff with footwork, we want to focus on achieving all those goals. And that drill, I think, is a really easy way to do that. That doesn't, you know, we talked about earlier, doesn't really cost any volume. It's, it's pretty, pretty easy to just kind of incorporate. Yeah, it's built into the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it reminds me of like, like track and field, like the run over like the little sprint over the little mini hurdles. Like to, yeah. it basically helps you pick your feet up faster, but it's subconscious. Or uh, my, my master's thesis research was like doing a depth jump. If you put a, like a hurdle or barrier in front, you're, you get off the ground faster. So right. it's like the presence of something that has to be, go, you know, to go over makes the impulse quicker. I, that's one of the things I do think about when I think of Olympic lifts and athletes is like how, how fast is the impulse going through the foot? Right. You know, is it, is it coming later than what your sport would demand? Like high jump, the impulse has to come really fast. And if I'm being too delayed or too much back, you know, screw up the impulse yeah. or whatever. And like, uh, you know, and then, so it just opens up the nuances of, well, what, what do we need to accomplish? And then, but I also think about like that you watch those really good Olympic lifters. It's like, there's the pull and that impulse is just the impulse yeah, and that switch over so fast. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, that drill just was awesome, man. I, I loved it. Um, 
So I did want, I know you've talked about this like a million times, so yeah. feel free to go into as little detail about that <laughs> experience as possible. I'm sure, you know, people could listen to many of the other podcasts yeah. you've talked about this, but I, I would just love to hear about um, what your philosophy uh, was on uh, weightlifting, specifically like for the purpose of Olympic weightlifting before your time with in the Bulgarian system, a little bit about your time with the Bulgarian system and then how you've kind of ran with that. Yeah. Obviously, obviously that being fueled drugs and much very much yeah, different, yeah. but how, how have you ran with that? So, so the, you know, before I didn't actually have a time period of training before I did the Bulgarian stuff. When I started lifting, I was, I found a coach, um, and, and he was really big on the Bulgarian system. This is, you know, late nineties. And he was, he was like, that's, that's what we do. That's what I do here. Uh, it's actually kind of funny because transitioning from him to Abhijayev was seamless. We actually had trained, I think, more than when I met Abhijayev. But it was always just you know maximum singles, always heavy. Every single exercise was heavy. Super narrow band of exercise, six exercises at most, maybe five. Um, I had done a 500-pound front squat before I had done a 500-pound back squat. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I could de- I could front squat more than I could deadlift for a while. Right? Wow. Ultimate specificity, right? Um, and and you know the the system was about when I when I started training, I had no idea how anything worked. You know, I, I didn't really know anything. I just knew that if you trained hard, you got better, right? Um, so you know, there was definitely a period of time when I first started lifting where I did have access to pretty good um, pretty good. Uh, literature, the, the, all the like translated Russian texts. And I actually read through those hundreds of times, but I always read through it. You know, I, as an athlete too, I understood that it was important for me to buy into and believe in my coach. And in Montana, when there's one coach, you know, you don't really have the option of like, well, I'll try something different. Um, so, so I read it and I understood, you know, I, I understood for the most part what that stuff was talking about. But I just discounted it as, well, the Bulgarian system is better, right? Because they had six champions and Russia only had five or you know, whatever stupid reason <laughs> there was. Um, not really thinking because I also had no experience with it. I had never done any kind of Russian style of training, right? I hadn't done any kind of you know, principle-based training before. I had just done go heavy all the time. Uh, so then when I, when I actually met Abhijayev and trained with Abhijayev, it was the same thing. It was the same idea. Abhijayev was super aggressive in the sense that there was no, there's no reprieve from training. It's just every day is the same. You know what you're going to get into. It's, it's going to be brutal, always pushing forward. Um, I think the best definition of the Bulgarian system is that it is a brute force method. Push as hard as you possibly can to achieve what you want, right? And just, and just if you're going to get better at snatching, then just keep pushing snatches maximum all the time only a very very narrow band of things that you were doing you know really really heavy weights really limited exercises high high frequency no variation no fatigue management no phase potentiation there's nothing going on outside of just applying this one stimulus to the body over and over and over and over again um and then you know as i trained with him and and trained with the bulgarians and and finished that and, and ended up moving on with my lifting career and and whatnot um, as a coach, I really changed my model of thinking to be, you know, when I first started coaching, I, I applied that stuff to, to athletes and I was like, this doesn't work. And, and I started to realize you, probably the biggest benefit to me in, in, in all this was becoming a professional coach, because as soon as you start making money at it and living as a coach, you realize really quickly when something doesn't work, people stop paying you for it. 
Uh, so, you know, you had a system that just wasn't effective, was not producing results. It was just not good. And in addition to that, probably me as a coach, when I started, I just wasn't as good a coach as I am now. Um, but you know, getting into the, the changes I've made over my career after the Bulgarian system, it really started to become everything that wasn't Bulgarian. So it went from being, okay, Bulgarian system is is super specific, really, really heavy all the time, focused entirely on results, on numbers. My system now, and, and the, the, the long transition that that was over years, is a system that is focused on, on process rather than results. It's grounded in the idea that we improve the process, that I would rather see someone develop better and better processes, better and better practice, better and better technique, uh, develop the you know, focus on, on execution of what you're doing rather than on the outcome of what you're doing. And then it's based in principles, based in the scientific principles of training, you know, specificity, overload, fatigue management, variation, phase potentiation, individual differences. These things are really just the, the principles we are, the, the, sorry, the program is just the expression of these principles for any one particular person. So specificity is something we, we, are always concerned with, but how does it manifest itself for Joel, right? And you're in your program. Okay, well, we have this many snatches, this many clean and jerks, this exercise benefits you. Um, you know, we have whatever phase we're in, we're doing different kind of training. Whereas the Bulgarian system is one size fits all. It's, you know, apply this to everybody and the ones that can do it will be weeded, you know, weeded out and they'll be the ones that, that go, for, uh, go forward. Outside of that, I moved away from the idea of the brute force method where Bulgarian system is interesting because a lot of people look at it as it's all snatch and clean and jerk. But the reality is out of 42 exercise sessions a week that we did, I think about 18 of them were squats, which is a huge percentage of training devoted to accessory movement. Um, so the system was very heavy on the idea that you're going to squat your way to a big number, a big total. You're going to push the squat up as hard as you can and the bigger that is, the more, you know, you're going to snatch and clean and jerk. Um, and while that obviously is effective on some level, uh, what I found is that I changed a huge percentage of that as time went on to be, you know, if you look at the percentage of squatting done by the best lifters I have, it's much, much lower. And, it, it, you know, when I started, too, it was high. We, we did a lot of squatting, not just maximum squats. We did lots of high volume squatting. And, and you know, we would do, you know all sorts of different squat programs and these kind of things and create these things that were focused around the idea of like building up a giant base of strength and then just praying that that was going to turn <laughs> It's going to transfer. It's yeah, going yeah, to yeah, pay, gonna, it's yeah, gonna pay just, off. Just squat an extra 10 kilos and you'll clean and jerk that PR. Fast forward even till last weekend, actually not even last weekend, Tuesday of last week um, where my lifter Alyssa Ritchie just won the Pan Am Championships made a lifetime PR clean and jerk of 107 kilos at 49 kilos body weight. And her front squat has improved one kilogram the last training cycle, but her clean and jerk improved too. And her clean and jerk has improved seven kilograms in competition over four months ago. So that's a 7% increase in performance with almost a negligible increase in squatting strength, um, which I think is the pinnacle of, of excellent programming and training simply because you're achieving the highest rate of return on the things you're doing, right? So 
you know, to kind of cover the gap there between where I was and where she is now is, is a lot of it was just a matter of looking at what are the variables that are necessary for me to understand and track, and then how do we manipulate them to get the results we want. Right now, the, the program is basically focused entirely on, on the improvement of increasing the overload mechanism, or sorry, increasing overload through the average weight. So we look at what is the average weight of the barbell in training. We add up all the sets and reps of snatch and clean and jerk. We find the average weight of that barbell. If it's, let's say, for her, 68 kilograms, we know that if we increase that 68 kilograms to 70 kilograms and do a similar amount of volume, a similar training structure, use the correct exercises, and we, and we program this in a way that, that is you know, logical from a fatigue management standpoint, she'll make progress. And it's been proven. It's been shown now several times with, with big PRs for her. So having a, a system now that has, we have a definitive goal we're looking to improve. We have an understanding of how specificity applies to that. We have an understanding of special exercises that work for her. We have an understanding of technique that, that you know, works for the athlete. Um, you know, applying all these things and coming at the problem from a, an efficiency standpoint rather than a brute force standpoint of, well, let's just throw more training at her. It's let's, let's find the things that are most effective that work well and, and exploit them over and over and over again to get the result we want without causing injury, without, you know, overtraining, without doing anything that can potentially throw this whole process off. Um, so that's really where the program is now. It's very much around, you know, let's be as intelligent as we can with what we're doing and apply things as, as correctly as possible um, and, and as best as possible. And now I look at, you know, training from a totally different lens is, is not how do I get more training out of her? It's how do I do less training and make the things I'm doing now even more effective? Um, and that's kind of one of the things, you know, I was talking to you earlier about jumps, you know, adding in more, more training for this, because I think that that could potentially be some kind of augmentation to the process that would be a very minimal addition of, of total training load. It's still going to have an impact. But it might be that we can get away with less squatting or less of this exercise or less volume in the clean or the snatch or something in exchange for this method that may have a really profound impact. Or it may just be that it's more training that does impact her really positively or an athlete really positively at the right time. So everything now, my whole thinking versus the Bulgarian stuff back in the day is, is around how do I make training more effective you know, and more effective training is, you know, defined as, you know, basically getting more for less. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ba the biggest bang for the bucks as possible. Right. And when you take the drugs out of the system yeah. too, like that's just becomes even ever more like present right. and powerful too, because right. that could mask just, just do more, just do yeah. more. And then the culture of that too, I'm sure like the oh, culture of that, that training system too. It's like, how could you not be thrown in there and at least yeah. be, just go along with the wave? <laughs> I mean, one I of guess. the things that was interesting to me with the Bulgarian stuff is that, and this is probably true of every system. And like I talked about earlier with people like finding an identity system, there's a, there's a set of excuses that comes with every training system. There's a set of justifications and rationalizations that comes with every style of training. And you probably see this too, but, but you know, every, every, Bulgarian style of training expert or coach out there that does that has the same set of excuses as the other ones. You know, it's like, Oh, well, I didn't perform. Cause you know, I just got it. You, you know, you got to just try harder or you got to do this or there's, there's just all these, you know, for every system, there's a built in rationalization for why it works or why it didn't work. And, and my, th my whole thought process now is 
to have none of those identity systems involved in the process, to have none of those excuses built in, to always have data, to always have numbers and to say, okay, let's look at the actual data and the numbers and see what happened. You know, did, was there a downward trend in the average weight of the bar? Did we actually reduce the overload too much? Did, did we you know, do too much volume? Were we doing not enough? If we can't compare what we did this last training cycle to the, the previous one, you're, I mean, you're dead in the water. You have no historical data to base your, your, you know, your uh, uh, troubleshooting process on. So you're sitting there th- just picking things out of the air and they're generally things that always kind of strike at the emotional cords of people, right? <laughs> like, oh, you just didn't try hard. You need more heart. Or, you know, oh, it was, it was really, that lift was really close. Like, I mean, I think, honestly, you can d- dissect all of this stuff down to, to, you know, to use mathematical formulas to determine, you know, why you're not making progress, you know, what's happening in your training. You can look at the data and say, hey, you know, these things are right or wrong. This is more or less than it was. You know, your technique can be defined with mathematical terms, like you know, your, the angle of your, your hip and knee and the speed at which you moved and the, what was happening is not right. It's not the same as it was the last time when you were successful. And so that's where my goal with training is to get to the point where you're not making excuses for yourself. You're not living in this place where as a coach, you have a, a you know, I just, um, I do a Chinese system, right? <laughs> where it's just easy to be like, I just adopt this totally vague concept and I throw it out there and I just, it's cool because the Chinese guys do it and they're cool, right? Um, it's actual, you know, evidence-based, you know, based, grounded in science, grounded in principles and grounded in numbers. Yeah, I like that. It's so, it's so interesting. It almost is a program that kind of absolves the thought process if it's just like yeah. a pure periodization-based system. Like, right. let's do this big squat base, and it's just going to go over. Like, or, or we're, you know, this group of people does these auxiliaries, so it's going to work for you, too. Right. Like, right. It, the ultimate, and I, I do think of like the Bondarchuk throw system as this yeah. ultimate. It's like it's all about the main thing, yeah. and then and how can I manage that really, really good? And then all the stuff below is just, just tools, yeah. and, and they, there's a time and a place, and they'll... That's something that was always interesting to me too about periodization in that it's so funny when we talk about periodization, we always talk about certain phase lengths and like, oh, it's a, it's a general phase or a power phase or hypertrophy phase. It's going to be eight weeks long. And it's always funny to me because like, why eight weeks? Like, (laughs) why would every single person's hypertrophy phase be eight weeks long? Shouldn't it be exactly tailored to the rate at which that person adapts or makes adaptations? And that should be an individual thing, I would imagine. And probably the most individual thing within training is the rate at which people adapt to training. And, and that's going to be dependent on a lot of things, the amount of training stimulus, you know, their genetics, all these factors. So it's funny that periodization becomes this framework where we start, which is, oh, you know, this guy is going to do eight weeks of hypertrophy training. That may be the perfect amount for him. It may be five weeks shy of the perfect amount, right? Whereas now what I look at with training is I look at landmarks. It's, okay, we're going to continue to do this training stimulus until we see this result from it, until we get to this landmark. And that landmark may be uh, you know, an extra kilo of body weight on you or whatever. Um, you know, and so it's like it makes more sense to me that the phase length and training cycle length should be very independent or very individual things more so than it's just, you know, oh, the arbitrary, the old, you know, eight <laughs> weeks of strength, eight weeks of peaking and, you know, whatever it is where <laughs> it's just funny to me that that, that, that in and of itself is not something that is really talked about much that the, the length of any training stimulus should be directly influenced by the individual. 
Yeah, no, a hundred percent. As you're talking, I'm like Bonder Chuck program, like you know, like because right. that's instead of yeah, because it's. I mean, how easy is it just in like you know eight weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks? Yeah. Oh, cool, nice round numbers. Like versus your, it's like the Bonder Chuck system. You're just waiting till the peak adaptation, and right. then and then you move on, and then move on, and right. that's. I mean, it's just like as pure as it gets, right? Yeah. And so and, and that, yeah, I think that's the ultimate level. That's the ultimate training. That that kind of concept really belongs in any training system. Uh, because it, it is the ultimate individualization of the program, right? If you have, if you have pre-constructed phase lengths, you, you're definitely not, you know, unless it's for the same athlete, you're definitely not in this place where you're making the program a, an individual program for somebody. Yeah. Oh, right on. No, I, that, it's so cool to hear this, like from where, you know, like my track being my background, but seeing this in weightlifting yeah. and like, I just, it's like, you think about like the global dynamics of coaching and how it's yeah. all coming together. So, uh, I did want to, I'm curious though, like, so obviously, um, Bulgarian system, it's like eight lift eight times a day or something mm-hmm. like that. How, how have you kind of cut that down in your process to refine the risk reward? And obviously absence of everything that, you know, went into yeah, that. So, culture. so the first, the first way if, is that, you know, if you imagine the Bulgarian system, it's the Bulgarian, the Bulgarian system, the loading that it exists in it, which is, you know, basically one, one range of intensity, one intensity mm-hmm. zone, which is like 90% and above. That's where most of the work is done. Your warmups are essentially irrelevant because they're so low volume. They're mm-hmm. only single repetitions on the way up. Um, and then the frequency exists as a byproduct of that, I believe, because if you're only doing single repetitions, you're not getting very tired. You're not going to generate a lot of fatigue. So you can do that multiple times a day. You have to do it multiple times a day in order to maintain fitness levels, because at some point, a reduction in training volume, even with a huge spike and increase in, in absolute weight on the barbell or relative intensity, mm-hmm. there's a limit to that. You just can't train at 100%. You'd have to do no warmups and only maximum lifts. Mm-hmm. So at some point we get to this logical end point of there's no way to make this training heavier there's no way to do more volume because if you increase the volume by rep repetitions per set, you generate so much more fatigue that you wouldn't be able to get to that high intensity. So the average intensity would come down. So what happens is the system basically becomes this default where the only way to maintain results is to train with less and less volume. The only way to accomplish enough volume to maintain fitness is to do higher and higher frequencies. And then at some point you only have so many hours in the day and so much training. So it's the ultimate plateau, right? The Bulgarian system is the ultimate plateau system where you basically have this one, you know, you you might start it. And this is probably a common occurrence for a lot of new weightlifters is to come in and start a Bulgarian system weeks one through six. It's like amazing. Oh my God, this is, I figured it out. Like I'm just making PRs every week. Uh, and then you get to week six where you've reached the end point of that. You can't intensify training more because it's already the most intense it can possibly be. And you can't increase volume. So you can't make fitness or any other, the, the magnitude of the stress in, improve because you can't do more of it. Otherwise you would induce too much fatigue. So you just stop, but you're always able to do enough training to maintain your results within a, you know, let's say a five or 10% range. You know, you can always kind of hit numbers that are close to your best, which gives you this misleading idea that, oh, well, I'm really close to a PR <laughs> or like, oh man, you know, I, my PR is hundred kilos and I did 95, like every day this week, I know a PR is around the corner. It's not, <laughs> it's not, you're literally on a plateau. You've done the exact same numbers for, for an entire week. You, you've the definition of a plateau. So knowing that that's the system and, and just, you know, figuring that out. 
I went backwards in the sense that, okay, well, if we want to improve results, there has to be the ability to overload. There has to be the ability to go from less intense training to more intense. So if we have to overload, then we got to start with less than maximum. So the first thing was a huge reduction in overall intensity. No longer were we training, no longer do, do I or have any of my athletes train at near maximum weights. Um, so much so to the point that Alyssa, the, the, the lifter I have that was at Pan Am's, she, uh, the heaviest snatch she did, and this would probably be more like the idea of concept of like peaking, but the heaviest snatch she did was in the whole training cycle was 82 kilos. She did 83 at the meet, but she did 82 kilos 23 days before the meet. That was the last heavy snatch she did. She'd snatch up to 90% several times in between that, that maximum and the meet, but there was no super aggressive training at any point in the, in the, in the training cycle. Her average intensity in the snatch is around 68 kilos. So she was doing most of her volume at 68 kilograms mm -hmm. and was able to produce an 83 kilo PR snatch, um, which to me is like super effective. So the overall intensity of the program comes down because it comes down. We now open up the door to have a lot more volume in there. And the volume allowed us to basically give us, you know, the volume is, is basically the measure of how much magnitude the training stimulus is going to have a hundred reps versus a thousand reps. You know, if it's the same intensity, the thousand reps gonna have bigger magnitude, right? So we've reduced the average intensity, reduced the absolute intensity to the point. Now we open up the, the, the program to have more volume. We incorporate more volume to a point that it benefits the athlete. So the goal is to go from, you know, an athlete starts training with me to slowly grow their, their total volume. And we keep track of these numbers very, very closely. So we're growing the total volume from month to month, year to year to a point that it basically levels out. And that point that it levels out is going to be de determined by essentially how heavy the athlete is. You know, bigger athletes are probably going to do a little bit more volume because they need to, to maintain muscle mass. Um, there, there's like a give and take with everything. So mm -hmm. I say they do more, but the reality is they probably do less because they're also bigger. So, but understanding that like, you know, there's a, there's a like bell curve here. The lightest athletes are going to do the most volume because they're small and they recover heaviest are doing less. But as time goes on, the athlete is doing more and more volume so that they can maximize their body weight class. Right. So they achieve this, this volume kind of cap. Then from that point, this is maybe like four or five years, that point volume starts to decline in exchange for an increase in the absolute intensity. And, and this process is the long-term training process that's different than the Bulgarian system where it was mm -hmm. basically starting out at that point and just trying to you know, use drugs to basically augment that, yeah. that position all the time. The, the cycle, you know, cycle to cycle training cycle, we just have a phasic structure now. So we go from periods of general training that we didn't have in Bulgarian system where lots of varied exercises are used, lots of remedial exercises are used. And, and, and what I would call like supplemental lifts where I think, I think there's, there's so many different jargons and, and terminology people use for, for this stuff where I would refer to like fundamental loading as the exercises that have a high correlation. So snatch clean mm -hmm. powers, you know, different variations and then additional loading, which would be like bodybuilding stuff, you know, the, the curls and pull-ups and those kind of things. Um, we have, we have, uh, the, the, the training goes from being general with more volume to additional exercises early on to help augment any kind of weaknesses we have or adjust for, you know, imbalances or corrections and those kind of things, things we really need to work at to keep the athlete healthy. And then we transition and slowly, you know, change that distribution 
from mostly additional to mostly fundamental as the cycle goes on. Very much any kind of periodization, you know, standard periodization where there's multiple phases and each mm-hmm. one has a less specific going to, going to more specific towards the meat. But the biggest thing is tracking these metrics and thinking about how we can reduce, um, you know, reduce intensity and lower volume in exchange for better results. Um, and, and obviously, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to do as little training as possible. I'm trying to do the right amount of training. I'm trying to get the most out of it. Uh, whereas the Bulgarian system is just this idea of exploitation all the time, mm-hmm. just constantly push, push, push. Um, and so, you know, that that's the biggest change, I think. That's where I went from Bulgarian system being, being you know, always going, you know, you're stuck in this plateau to now it's big valleys, big peaks. Another big thing that I think changed a lot that, that is very uncommon in U.S. lifting is time off um, is taking extended periods of time, multiple weeks, month off after competitions, which is not a popular idea in the Western in Western weightlifting. Um, I think there's a fear that if you take time off, you'll reduce your potential to make progress. And my experience has been the opposite in that, you know, when, when a lifter took a month off or multiple time, you know, multiple weeks off, and, and I mean off as in we're not training the Olympic lifts a lot. Mm-hmm. They might be doing CrossFit or some, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, transitional training. Um, you know, it, it has two big benefits. One is that it allows for recovery and allows for the, the athlete to spend time on things that they wouldn't normally do. And it resensitizes them to training volume again. So that resensitization comes back. They can have a shorter, more aggressive, more intense amount of training leading into a competition and not have the fear of injury looming because of chronic overtraining or chronic, you know, um, chronic things, you know, coming up, chronic overuse stuff coming up because it's a short training block. It's a short training cycle, essentially. Uh, and so that's been a huge benefit, I think, in, in the sense that that's where I really the Bulgarian system is completely devoid of, <laughs> of any kind of you know, transitional periods. Yeah, no, those are so critical. Like I see, like even when like my swimmers come back after they've had a month off and they start lifting again, yeah. they're get really strong, really fast right. in like three weeks. It's like crazy how quickly it's like, I'm always so, the rest is so key. I, uh, when you do those general training periods, yeah. um, is there like, when do like the kind of those, you know, the KPA KPI markers, like the, the things you're trying to hit before you end the cycle, is that exist in the general or do you kind of wait, um, do you, do you wait till you get into the specific to start kind of getting those markers going? Probably more into the specific. Okay. A lot of times with the general stuff, um, it's, it's the, the unfortunate aspect for us is that the weightlifting calendar year for the, the higher level lifters is very crammed. It's very crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many competitions they have to do to qualify that those periods of time are, are generally, unfortunately, shorter than I would like them. But, you know, you might have at maximum, like I think Alyssa is probably only going to have at maximum three weeks in this, in this transition, which is unfortunate because, uh, like a month would be, you know, a month, five weeks would be way better. Um, but a lot of stuff is probably just more in the, the latter part of the training. Gotcha. And then like the, the, the phase or the classic periodization element, of, it's more about just the general, lots of movements, not yeah. just not specific, not like yeah. this phase is to get your squat up and then it's going to like, yeah, it's no. just a general multilateral. No. And, and that's actually one thing that the squatting I do, and this is probably another throwback to, to Bonder Chuck, but my whole concept of squatting has changed from, you know, the traditional model, I think in you, in, in American lifting is that the squatting is the third competition lift. And it's, it's something that is to be given this like holy shrine 
that you know we we have a squat we have squat programs. I've never seen a push press program. I've never seen a, a snatch pull program. Um, but squat programs are the most common thing in the world, and and much like what Bondarchuk's research showed that I think is brilliant in the fact that throwing you know let's let's compare the bench press in the shot put to the squat in weightlifting. Yeah. You know, he showed this correlation up to about 60 feet with the bench press being a really positive indicator. And then above that was almost like a negative indicator, right? Um, the squat is one of those things where it's very, very easy to make the connection and the rationalization and justification and the belief. And, and, you know, you go to the squat temple every Sunday and pray to the squat (laughs) gods that like, you know, if it just comes up five more kilos, we're going to have this PR. I even did it myself the other day, but, uh, the, the idea is like, okay, have a big squat program, then it turns into big lifts. And there's this disconnect between those. What you see with like throws, and you know, we know that like there's a really high, a really positive correlation in the transfer training between throws with lighter implements and heavier implements. And in weightlifting with squatting, the way that I uh, dose the training for squatting is, is essentially what is a low intensity, lower uh, transference squat and a higher transference squat. And that comes down to this this divide in the intensity zones at about 100% of the clean and jerk. Hmm. So all of my squat training for my lifters is based on their clean and jerk. The first thing that does is it frames squatting. When I talk about it with other people, it frames squatting in the correct light. It frames it in the sense that it is an accessory movement. It's something that's done to augment the results of the clean and jerk. It also adjusts the training volume correctly for people that are really strong squatters and really weak squatters. If you're a really weak squatter, basing it off your clean and jerk is going to right away put in perspective, you know, it's, it's going to right away make the training slightly more aggressive, slightly harder for you, um, which should help to bring up those lagging indicators. Then with people who are really strong, it's going to reduce wasted energy and wasted time, right? If you're squatting 110% of your back, or you're doing a, a back squat with 110% of your clean and jerk, that's probably about 80%, maybe lighter of your best you know, if you're a really balanced lifter, um, of your best back squat, but if you're a really strong squatter, it's probably like 75%. So you're going to be in a place where you're just not wasting as much energy on squatting. And then, you know, when you're talking to, to coaches, it helps to get them on the same page. So they understand that. But, but what we do then is say, okay, we have this, this, this line, this hundred percent clean and jerk. We move from squatting below that line to above that line. We shift volume, total volume of squats from just below that to just above that as the training cycle progresses. So rather than sit there and, and say, what is our giant squat program where we're just crushing people with squats and huge sets and tons and tons of work, we move most of our volume from just below the clean and jerk maximum to just above it. And as that number starts to move above it, as they shift from, you know, let's say they did a hundred reps below a hundred percent, the next cycle they did a hundred reps above, you know, we know that there's going to be an increase. We know there's a positive increase. And the best example would be Alyssa where, you know, her, her, her front squat didn't really improve much beyond a few kilograms. And that was an indirect thing. We weren't even mm-hmm. chasing after that. It just happened because the process was adhered mm-hmm. to, uh, but her clean and jerk came up tremendously. Um, you know, a year ago at the same meet, she missed a hundred kilo clean and jerk. She missed the clean at a hundred kilos and fast forward one year later, 7% increase is, is remarkable. So I think that's one of those things where like, it's super important to, to dial in 
you know, correct training and, and you know, apply it correctly. Yeah, I, I love the like the idea of the let's let's go in and squat on Sunday and pray to the squat gods yeah, yeah. and hope it. But I always looked at like it, it's almost like the really powerful, just like built up horsepower of an athlete is gonna it's gonna manifest itself into a big squat. It's yeah. just like your engine kind of, and yeah. it's like if you don't have that engine, you taking on heavy squatting almost turns you into something different than yeah, the athlete very you're much. trying to be. Yeah, we weak athletes that are trying to increase the squat tend to be the ones that suffer most from it. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're you know, with me, I mean, I could, I could walk in the gym and, and probably not do anything and I'd be good at squatting. Right. Like I, I was always a strong squatter. Um, and I could squat as hard as I want. I mean, obviously I did, you know, so I squat harder <laughs> than I wanted to. Um, and I would get better at it, you know, and I could do almost no accessory, nothing else. And I would still get better at squatting. But the people that are not necessarily built well for squatting or don't improve a lot when they do a lot of squatting suffer from it because it becomes so fatiguing and it produces so little result for them, even if they did increase their squat five kilos or 10 kilos. Um, it may not have any transference to weightlifting because it's, it's required them to become a completely different kind of, of lifter. Mm-hmm. They've become slower because they've done so much squatting. They've done so much volume to get so much bigger. Whatever it is, all those m- maladaptations are just detracting from being a good weightlifter. Yeah, I, I love this conversation because it just play. It just, I mean, this is weightlifting, like yeah. the core of strength, yeah, right? right. And, and like, you know, in all these other sports that aren't even themselves strength sports, it's like it just frames us to look at strong yeah. and transference in a different way. I tell my, my athletes a lot, it's like, look, like I want your lifts to go up. I want your squat yeah. to go up, but I want it to go up because you're a better athlete. I want, because you're faster in the water, I want it to go up. Yeah. Not because you came in here and like, you know, bashed your head against the wall and had to beat yeah. your buddies and exactly. Metallica. Like that's not <laughs> necessarily the goal. Like we want it to be the other way around. And that's what, you know, or more athletic frame, but Max, man, I could, this could be a long form, like Joe Rogan. I could talk to you for three hours, but <laughs> I, I know it's uh it's Sunday. So Let's, um, I guess that's, that's all I got for the day. Cool. Um, but man, it was just awesome talking yeah. to you about this world being in your gym. Uh, thanks for having me here and yeah, appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate man. it. It's uh, it's, uh, it's great to be on here. Thanks for tuning in with us today. I hope you enjoyed that show. And uh, I think we can all take those concepts to whatever end of the field we are in. It's just fun to talk with someone who has been through it all and is getting awesome results with his own athletes. As always, if you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to us on. We'd really appreciate that. Also, uh, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, great blog, Uh, as well as leading class sports technology and data collection, as well as training tools in their online store, such as KBox for that timing system, Gymwear, they have force plates, uh, grid contact grids, muscle stim, and uh, just an all-around great products for you as coaches to get the most out of your athletes. All right, that does it. We'll see you again back next week with another great guest. Have a good one.